As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one, <clears throat> with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? <clears throat> Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me, Therefore I will remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my phones taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. And then Psalm 43, which is much shorter. <laughs> Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are, my, you are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Thank you so much, Jean. Thank you. I'm going to pray for Ian as he comes to uh, speak God's message to us. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Psalms. And um, we pray for Ian today um, as he speaks, that he speaks your message to us, that you give us ears to hear. Amen. Good morning. Lovely to be with you again. Uh, Jean. Cordell has chosen a fabulous psalm for us to have a look at today. It's a psalm that um, all human beings have to wrestle with, the reality of living in a fallen world, that sometimes painful reality of realizing things are not turning out quite the way you expected it to. Before we get into the psalm itself, let me whet your appetites with that theme of realizing things are not always working out as we hoped they would be. One of the most quoted lines in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, was actually spoken by Susan when she hears that Aslan, the Christ figure 
in that Narnia series of books is, in fact, a lion. She says, I'm not sure I want to meet him if he's a lion. Are you sure that he's safe? I have a slide for this one, I do believe. Are you sure that he's safe? Mr. Beaver scoffs at Susan. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. As we read those words in the 21st century, where we're used to the NHS caring for us from cradle to the grave, it's hard for us to imagine that God might have anything for us in the future that would make us uncomfortable or painful, disillusioned or shocked, stunned or simply doubting his goodness in our life. And when it's clear that the future obviously has that reality baked into it, we start to wonder whether God cares, or perhaps we just can't trust him as much as we used to. Somewhere deep inside our sin-damaged lives, we assume that God will keep pain far away from us, unless, of course, he's just not interested in the details of our lives. Now, we know from Scripture he's very interested in the details of our lives. And so this dilemma sets in, this internal struggle. Now, we know that pain should never be sought out. Pain is not the point of what God is doing in our lives, but God knows that it is meaningful. You see, pain warns us. Pain guides us. There are three gifts that God has given to humanity to help us navigate in a fallen, damaged world. Pain, fear, and guilt. Three gifts that we'd rather give back to him. But you only have to speak to someone with leprosy and no fingers to find out just how damaging it is to live in this world and be unable to experience pain. To find that your hands in a fire are melting but you can't feel it. Or what about a fool who ignores his legitimate fears when a bull runs at him in the field? In the field. Fear that was designed to give him that adrenaline rush to get out of the bull's bowling alley. And let's face it, people who feel no guilt tend to be psychopaths, dangerous to society, and eventually we just lock them up. Pain, fear, and guilt, three gifts that we do not value. Now, of course, excessive pain, excessive fear, excessive guilt is extremely damaging. We need to very quickly respond to whatever they're telling us and change our ways before they become extreme, before they start to hurt us. But keep in mind, God's faithfulness can never be measured by the degree of our comfort. In fact, God's faithfulness is often found in the very extreme realities of life, in those agonizing times. And in those moments, we often find God's presence is there with us, a presence that we happily ignored in our days of comfort, in our days of self-contentment, when we forgot about the one who gives us those good days, those mountaintop experiences. C.S. Lewis once wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. 
but he speaks to us in our consciences and he shouts at us in our pain. In the end, it's all part of God's unexpected, unforeseen ways of reshaping us, restoring to us the humanity that was so badly damaged by the fall and making us more like his son, making us more useful in his mission into this world because, of course, what we say is about Jesus. And so, as ambassadors of Christ, we should start to look ever more like him. Let me take that one away. The psalmist, as he writes this psalm, knows all of this, as he does this double-barreled psalm of 42, 43. He wants to help us navigate those disillusioning moments when we wonder what God is doing, and we just plain and simply wish he would stop doing it. Gene Cordell chose one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 43, and uh, we dis I decided to give her a call just to be sure that we were seeing the same thing in this psalm together. And I'm glad to be able to tell you that we both saw the same thing. I think it was Jean that put it so well when she said, it helps us to ask the questions we all ask. How do we handle life's hills and valleys in life? What do we do when we wonder where God is when our prayers appear to be bouncing off of the ceiling? How do we navigate a sin-damaged world when we know that we are fallen ourselves? When we know our knowledge is incredibly finite? when we realize our choices are very fallible and we are very fragile walking through this world. Did you know in the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 43 doesn't stand on its own. It's actually a double-barreled psalm. For Jews reading their Bible, Psalm 43 is actually just Psalm 42, part 2. So permit me, if you would, just to give you a sense of what happens in Psalm 42 because it's going to help us to fashion a lens to see what the psalmist is writing in our psalm, Psalm 43. Psalm 43 with all its depth and technicolor. It looks something like this. The psalmist starts out with a very clear vision of who God is. He's passionate about God. It's that verse that we learned when we were young Christians, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul longs for you, God. And then he plunges into a valley of fear and doubt. But he's placed three platforms of hope into his future, platforms that will help him to reorientate his thinking, to focus on God again that he saw in verses 1 and 2. So let's follow the psalmist then in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 42. Listen to what he says. As the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? In the first two verses of Psalm 42, it's as if the psalmist is taking a good, long, hard look at the very essence of life itself. He gets a look into the core of life. What is it all about? And of course, it's all about God. And he takes that good look because he's about to dive into this quagmire of fear and doubt. So before he does, he refreshes his vision. 
He sees it's all about God. Or as we would say, Jesus is at the essence of what drives life. The refreshing water of life, the bread of life, the compass north point for life, the light of life in a dark world. But notice how the psalmist places these platforms of hope into his future so that he reminds himself who to look to when life gets really dark. A preacher who uses humor in the pulpit far more effectively than I do. When he got to Psalm 42, he paused for dramatic effect. He looked at the congregation and he raised his index finger and he said, the Lord wants your pants. <laughs> and by that, he was simply drawing attention to what the psalmist is saying. God wants us to pant for him. God wants us to keep in mind that he is the essence of life, that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the, corner of, in the core of our lives that can be filled with nothing but him. And so he's going to keep on reminding us, I am the essence of what keeps you alive. I am the one who gives you life. I shape life. I gave you. I made you in my image. You can try and fill that gap with a whole lot of other things, but it'll never work. For I am made for you. You are made for me. As the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul thirsts for God. We were designed that way. And we get distracted by many other things. But the sooner we remind ourselves, and the community of God's people keeps reminding us, stay focused, stay focused. In the words of Peter, when many disciples were walking away from Jesus, Jesus turned to Peter and said, are you still here? Why don't you go as well? And Peter said this, who else can we turn to? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Peter was not in a good place with Jesus when he said those words. He watched as many disciples walked away shocked by this weird rabbi who said things that did not please them, made them feel uncomfortable. But Peter knew that there are no other gods out there. There is nowhere to go to find that stream of living water that makes life sing, makes life work. Friends, if we do nothing else with this psalm, can I remind you to cultivate your relationship with God whilst the sun shines? You're going to need that warmth, that memory of His goodness and care because your life and mine has packed into the future many valleys. And God is expecting us to navigate them well, knowing that He walks with us through each valley. As Peter discovered, when he went beneath the waves of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was there, hand held out. You need to remind yourself of his goodness because you've seen it, because you've experienced it. Bottle those memories and open them up in those dark valleys. Remind yourself with its sweet fragrance that God still cares. He's not given up on you. So let's go back to that psalm 
And let's watch him as he starts to descend with a warm memory of verses 1 and 2 on his back. Watch him as he reaches these three platforms of hope. In, in Psalm 42, he's going to reach the first two. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist finds himself longing for God. Verse 4, he actually says, I remember. What is it that he remembers? He remembers much better times. He has this deep sense of sadness now because these times are not those times. These times are sad times. And then he climbs onto his first platform of hope, and it's there in verse 5. He does a little bit of what Gene Caudle cleverly said on the phone, internal self-talk. He remembers the fresh air that he saw, that clear vision of God in verses 1 and 2. He reminds himself of his hope, future focus, remember. And of course, it's all about God and God's call on his life. And so he starts this internal self-talk. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. But then it's as if he lets go of platform number one, and his spirit just keeps descending into this valley of fear and doubt. In verses 6 to 10, he's just saying, I feel forgotten, I feel downcast, I feel oppressed by other people. And the people around him are not helping him because in verse 10 they say, where is your God now? Some dark logic that if things are not going well, clearly God doesn't exist. And of course their ugly question is beginning to mirror his own internal doubts that are now starting to grow in the soil of divine silence, which tends to happen when we enter the valleys of life. But again, he reaches out for the second platform of hope, kind of a life raft in the sea of fear and doubt. It's there at the end of Psalm 42, verse 11. He does that internal self-talk again. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. In other words, he looks up and he reminds himself of what he knows. God has not forsaken him. Friends, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so your soul and mine, our very inner being, the essence of who we are, can never find satisfaction and meaning and purpose in life without constantly feeding on what God has given us, constantly living off of who he is. Paul knew that. <clears throat> you may be aware that the letter to the Ephesians was written while he was in prison. You can imagine Paul sitting in a cold, dank Roman prison. Probably he was manacled to a Roman soldier who had to keep an eye on him. And then his left leg was probably chained to the wall. He wanted to write this letter to the Ephesians, so he probably had to get a secretary to come in with a scroll who would start writing for Paul. And Paul wrote these words to the Ephesians, chapter 6. I'm in chains now. The Roman soldier probably pulled his arm at the time. Yes, we know you are. 
I'm in chains now, he said, still preaching this message of God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly as I should. Paul is not ignoring the dark reality of the world around him. It's grimy, it's cold, it's wet. And a Roman soldier is constantly watching him. Paul is ignoring none of that, but he simply believes God can use him even in the valleys of life. And so he's just going to keep on keeping on. Some days, all you can do is put one leg in front of the other. Well, we look briefly at Psalm 42. Let's move to our Psalm, Psalm 43, or as the Jews would call it, Psalm 42, Part 2. Traveling as he is now to the third and final platform, we know now that from Psalm 42, people are beginning to oppress him. He feels abandoned. He feels as if God doesn't care. Now in verse 1 of Psalm 43, he asks God to vindicate him in the face of all of this opposition he's experiencing. But unlike Psalm 42, you'll notice the psalmist is starting to rise. His hope in God is changing his perspective. The trouble with the valley of life, the walls tend to come in. All you can see is the darkness of what you're experiencing. And God's faithfulness, by definition, is past tense. He needs to remember, so he says in verse 2, send out your light and your truth. In other words, he knows that God's bright truth, his word, will change his perspective on his situation. He wants to return to the place that the deer longs for, those sweet waters of God's presence. God's perspective on my life. God's firm foundation when I'm experiencing what I don't want to experience. His perspective is starting to lift him up. He hasn't found peace yet, but he's not in the dark place he was back in Psalm 42. He's beginning to rise, and eventually he hits in verse 5 at the end of Psalm 43, that third and final platform of hope. Hope again in God, he says to himself. Here is a man who's starting to come out the other side of a dark valley that he's been in, this dark valley of fear and doubt and disappointment with God. Friends, as the deer pants for streams of living water, we need to constantly remind ourselves in our communities that we can fill that God-shaped vacuum with nothing else if you've noticed anything in the 21st century, more and more things are being presented to us to distract us from the essence of life. James, the Lord's half-brother, who wrote that great epistle, knew what it meant to live with the dark reality of a fallen world. James comes into the picture after Acts 12, when Peter was released from prison, falsely imprisoned, persecution was rising for Christians, and so it appears that he left and went over to head up the church in Rome, and the baton was passed to James. James now heads up the church on the eastern Mediterranean as the church spreads down Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt. This man would come under even more severe persecution than Peter, from both the Roman and Jewish authorities, and eventually he dies as a martyr. The Jewish authorities took him to the top of the temple and pushed him off. 
And you can only imagine, they said, we heard that your brother said that the evil one took him to the top of the temple and said that the angels will catch you. Let's see if they catch you, James. Push. He fell onto the court of the Gentiles and they stoned him to death. But before James was martyred, he wrote that epistle to the churches on the eastern side of the Mediterranean and he wrote these words, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. Keep on keeping on, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, James knew that the hills and valleys of life are there to reshape us, to return our humanity, to make us more like his son. James wrote those verses on a platform of his own faith. He knew that pain and suffering in this world was doing something to him, making him more like our Lord. Friends, we focused our attention on Psalm 43, but we noted that actually the first half of it starts in Psalm 42. We watched the psalmist start with a very clear focus on the one who gives life, the one who sustains life, the one who designed our life, the one who reshapes our life. No matter where we're going, through the hills and valleys of life, God is at work. We watched him as he descended into that valley of fear and doubt, and then he reached those three platforms, three platforms that were designed to help him to look up that God had not abandoned him, that the very essence of his being needed to hunger and thirst for God. Allow me, if you would, to try and make an application to this psalm, but by stepping away from the pulpit on purpose. I just think the issue that this psalm is trying to deal with is so important. I always find the pulpit kind of puts a barrier between the preacher and people, at least psychologically in my mind. And I would prefer it if I could talk to you person to person and just say, this is too important for you just to forget it by lunchtime. Allow me to bring three applications that I think might help us live out Psalm 42-43 in the 21st century. And the first one is just simply repeating what Jean Cordell said to me, self-talk. Internal self-talk is normal and it's natural and God understands it. The valleys of life will bring it out of you. You'll wonder to yourself, part of you will say, I know he's faithful, I know he is doesn't seem like it, but I know he is. And part of you will say, are you sure? Can that be? Look what's happening. Friends, the difference between you and me and the guy who wrote this psalm is he was deeply buried in a community of God's people. And his internal self-talk was constantly shaped by his friends who could help him to see beyond the valley that he was in, that could help him to clarify what God was doing. Our problem is that we're now on the other side of a pandemic that sent our Christian life virtually. On our own, we walked without the community of God's people except online. Not ideal for Christians. 
Now, post-pandemic, we have to reinvest in relationships. It was so convenient just being able to switch the telly on, watch TV, switch it off, and you were still in your pajamas at home. How convenient is that? But it's not good Christian living because we have to invest in friendships. We have to invest in each other because our friends are the ones that are going to help us to get through those valleys. You see, your friends are the people who can sing your song back to you when you have forgotten the words. And the valley will help you to forget the words. You need other people to bounce your thoughts off of. Here's another application of this psalm. Remember. When the sun is shining, when you're on a mountaintop, keep in mind the next valley is going to test you. It's going to take you through an arid place, and you need to reach for those gems of memory that remind you of God's goodness and care. He hasn't given up on you just because you're going through an arid place. I've restarted a spiritual discipline that the saints have been doing for thousands of years. It's just called journaling. When I think about it, when something amazing has happened, I put a date and I say to myself, but I'm writing to God, thank you, Lord, I saw your fingerprints over everything that happened yesterday. My mom was given a clean bill of health, thank you, Lord. That staff meeting we had that we were all got the vision and the passion and everything for the business, thank you, Lord, I know you were at work there. That Christmas bonus, I didn't expect it, Lord, but I know your fingerprints are all over it. The chat I had with my neighbor that made such a difference to our relationship, I know you were there, God. You read those things back to yourself when you're in that arid place, where you look for those gems and you say, God has not forgiven me, because the evil one plays with your mind in the valley. Are you sure that God cares? He does. And finally... This is a bit of rabbinic wisdom. Rabbis love to do this with their congregations. We might as well do it. Cham ze yavor. Hebrew is such a juicy, meaty language. You almost get your teeth into the language. Cham, it's guttural. Cham ze yavor. Hebrew is written from right to left. So cham is that weird, is that weird sort of L-shaped thing. The ma is, almost looks like a box next to the ha. And the vowel a is actually buried underneath the consonants. They write their vowels as dots and lines under the consonants. Chamze yavor, the rabbi would say, this too shall pass. And they don't just say that in valleys. When their congregations are going through a particularly good time, everything's wonderful, the business is going great, this too will pass. Why? The rabbi says, because every mountain is only a mountain because it's surrounded by two valleys. You will come off the mountain at some point, and you need to learn what God is teaching you on the mountaintop because this too will pass. And then when their congregations go into a valley, they say the same. This too will pass. You'll come out the other side. Why? Because a valley is only a valley because it's surrounded by two mountains. Do you remember in Job, the first three chapters, it was as if hell itself had opened up and swallowed his life. And then you'll notice in chapter 3, the writer of the book of Job observes Job, how he responds to all of this. 
And it's, he writes, and all of these things Job did not sin. I'm thinking to myself, what? What are you talking about? He's had hell thrown at him. And all of these things Job did not sin by accusing God of doing evil. Friends, that's what the valleys might do to you. That's what the evil one wants them to do to you. To think that God doesn't know what the heck he's doing. It's not true. Friends, Gene chose a fabulous psalm for us to consider this morning. It's a powerful psalm. It's a psalm that God inspired, this double-barreled psalm. But he didn't just inspire it. He thinks it's so important that for the last 2,500 years, he had scribes write it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And somewhere in the 19th century, it spread to masses of languages. There are 7,200 languages on the face of the planet. Less than half of them have the word of God. So he keeps on pushing his word out. And he made sure in the English language that someone translated for your benefit and mine because he wants us to consider. What does he want us to consider? Why would he go to such lengths for us? Friends, I think it's because God wants us to know that he understands what happens in those valleys of fear and doubt. He knows what human beings go through. It's normal. But what is not normal is to watch God come out of the mist of fear and doubt and see that his hand is with us all the time. That is un, not, un, unnatural, you could say, but certainly not normal. God is still there. So can I suggest to you that we become a people that keep on focusing on the source of life, the one who sustains our life, the one who is constantly reshaping our lives through all the hills and valleys of life. Let's become an unusual people who shine out hope in a post-Christian culture that is giving themselves ever less reason to be hopeful about the future. Let's teach each other what does it mean to thirst, to long for the very source of life himself. Amen. Amen.